The reading from God's Word today is Psalm 83. I don't know what page it is on the Bible, but uh, anyway, Psalms in the middle of the Bible, 83. O God, do not keep silent. Be not quiet, O God. Be not still. Show how your enemies are astir, how their foes rear their heads. With cunning they conspire against your people. They plot against those you cherish. Come, they say, let us destroy them as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. With one mind they plot together. They form an alliance against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, of Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the people of Tyre, even Assyria has joined, has joined them to lend strength to the descendants of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as you did to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who perished at Endor and became like refuse on the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmona, who said, let us take possession of the pasture lands of God. Make them like tumbleweed, O oh my God, like chaff before the wind. As fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountains ablaze, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame so that men will seek your name, O oh Lord. May they ever be ashamed and disgraced and dismayed, that they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are the Most High over all the earth. Thank you, Jill. So, Psalm 83. Um, Voices of Faith. This is one of those psalms that if we were to say this is the word of God probably we'll have to think twice. What is it? This is the word of the Lord, praise be to God. It's a tough psalm. I've chosen it intentionally because the book of Psalms is amazing. And there are some psalms that are very close to our hearts and we can approach and go to them because we can identify. I've chosen Psalm 83 intentionally because it's a very hard psalm to read in our own context. Because it talks very clearly about enemies. Before we get into the psalm, I want to bring a positive note to this psalm this morning. And that's what I wanted to encourage you. But before we do that, um, I've got uh, a Baptist question. And we're going to know now how many Baptists does it take to tell the name of the guy who has written the psalm properly. So how would you pronounce A-S-A-P-H? Because there are two kinds of pronunciations. I was too much concentrated getting my uh, lecture earlier on, so I didn't pay attention how you read it, Jill. But how did you read it, Jill? I didn't. You didn't? 
Did you avoid that intentionally? So how do we say Asaf or Asaf? Asaf. Good Baptists. Asaf. Good Baptists too. So, okay. Just to make everybody happy, I'm going to change, interchange the name, and just say sometimes refer it as a psalm of Asaf, and sometimes I'm going to refer it as a psalm of Asaf. Um. But it's a very, very interesting psalm. It's deep. It's a psalm that is composed of prayer, of lament, of curses, imprecations on the enemies. And if you read it very in one go, and if you read it again and again, there there are three or four kind of things that recur that are very clear. So basically... There is this cry out for God to come into action. There is this description of the enemies, the greatness of the opposition. But also, as, as the back picture of that, there is this great involvement of God in the history of Israel. And then there is again this prayer, this longing of shaming these enemies. And then it ends with verse 17 and 18 again, God's act. But who was Asaph? Asaph was a Levite. He was appointed to, if you read, and if you want to read more of this, you can find about him in the book of First Chronicles. But he was a very important musician when the Ark of the Covenant came back to Jerusalem. He was the guy who was um, appointed to play the bronze symbols during the ceremony. Also, David later on in First Chronicles chapter 16 appoints Asaph with a very important task to be giving constant praise and thanks to the Lord God of Israel. So Asaph was quite involved with the spiritual worship, leading the spiritual worship of the people of Israel at a very, very interesting time. And actually, one other reason why I chose Psalm 83 is that when I introduced the subject, I said, we're not going to be dealing only with Psalms of David." But we want to deal also with a psalm from Asaph. So here we've got a Levite who has been part of the spiritual life of the community of God. Who's been seeing actually God in action. Who's been trying to be helping the people of God to worship him. And yet, he writes this psalm. Which actually to the 21st century mindset, ears, Western culture does not fit. Because not only talks about enemies, but it talks about asking God to get involved with these enemies that are not only 
the enemies of the people of Israel, but ultimately they are the people, they're the enemies of God. Now, I have no intention this morning to, to deal with this psalm in the way of fundamentalism or anything like that. I just want for us to get a picture of how do we get from this difficult passage of Scripture principles that can help us as Christians in our walk with Jesus and in our prayer life. Because what I appreciate about this psalm is that Asaph is being very honest. Can you try and put yourself in the shoes of Asaph? If you read First Chronicles chapter 20, you have the prayer of the king there. What was going on in Jerusalem in those days? They were surrounded by enemies from all sides of corners. Do you know when prayers become really that they come flow from the heart? I think this is one of those prayers of lament that really, God, you know the deepest thoughts of my heart and I choose now to share them with you because I have nowhere else to hide. In 1997, in Albania, we had a a total chaos of anarchy where the falling of the pyramid schemes and all that had to do with it had a big effect on the church and the mission agencies and missionaries. But I can tell you to this day that this was the time where we could see God at work. And I still get goosebumps from it. Because the prayers were so honest while people were being afraid of losing their lives. While people were surrounded by the uncertainty that somebody could come out to your house at midnight with a Kalashnikov and take everything that you own. By the uncertainty that anybody could come and take my sister. Because it was so chaotic. And I just wanted to bring that situation, which was only 1997, into my picture. And I spoke to Ruth about this. And Ruth said, well, this is not about you today. It's about the psalm, which is fine. But I just wanted to draw a parallel to say that actually being surrounded by enemies and being under this oppression, it was a real thing for the psalmist. And of course, this is an encouragement for us to look at it and say, well, we can approach God with honesty. And if enemies is the trouble for the psalmist, for this guy who writes this thing, then he deals with enemies. But he does not. And that's what I appreciate from Asaph in Psalm 83. There is no personal agenda here. Because all he is worried and all he is concerned, and you can see it in the end of the psalm, is that the glory of God does not get diminished. But he has to be honest. That's where his heart beats. That's what is bothering him. That's what is really not going well in the life of the spiritual community. And I just wish, I just wish that as people of God, as the church of God, 
we were really truly honest with God that what is bothering us instead of having generic prayers of blessing this and doing that and doing that. And how much do we enter our own agenda in, the, in our prayer lives as individuals, but also as community of faith? But here we've got a guy who says, actually, the enemies are doing my head in at the moment. God, could you please do something about that? The second question that I would like to deal with, upon the first one was, who is Asaph or Asaph? The second question that I would like to look at this psalm and help us in the 21st century is, what is an enemy? What is an enemy? Well, for the psalmist, it's very clear. One of the reasons why I asked Jill to read this is because it's all those tricky names that he lists there. And it's this and this and this. And perhaps this list that he's got there is not an elaborate of real enemies that they're facing as the people of Israel. But at least he wants to mention eight or nine or ten or probably what currently is going on in his mind. But yet, he knows that the enemy is very, very close. Now, I've been looking into Psalms, and if there is another Psalm that this Psalm 83 connects very well, is Psalm 2. What we've got in Psalm 2 is, what, why do the nations rage? Because they are against God and his anointed. Whereas in Psalm 83, the nations rage because, again, they are against God and his chosen people. So there is a continuity of themes here. But... I'd like to take this a little bit further in the chronology of Bible. When we talk about the enemies of the psalmist, he's very clear to point one, two, three, four, such and such, such and such. And then you wait a little bit on the history. And then you come into the story where Jesus is born and he's being, well, he's leaving in Jerusalem. And then you've got the story of the crucifixion. Who is against Christ, the crucifixion? And which are the enemies that actually conspire, even though they are enemies against one another, they all come together because they want to see Jesus crucified? Well, it's the Jews. It's the Romans. Actually, to be more specific... Is the teachers of the law, it's Herod, and it's Pilate, which in normal daily lives, they have nothing in common. Actually, they're enemies towards one another. And here we've got this chronology to saying that if in Psalm chapter 2, well, in Psalm 2, it was people being against God and his anointed, which was 
which actually Peter quotes in Acts chapter 4, and he really refers to that as Jesus Christ. And then we've got the enemies that are against God and his people. And here we've got the psalmist says, well, please God, act. Another New Testament story, Acts chapter 5. Acting against God. Do you remember Gamaliel? After they had imprisoned the people or the, the, the apostles, they says, Peter has just finished preaching and Gamaliel is not sure whether Peter's arrest is legit or not. And he says, let's make sure Verse 30, well, it's Acts chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. And I'm just going to read basically um, the beginning of verse 35 and the end, just to get the picture. So, Gamaliel, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right in English, he addresses the Sanhedrin, and he says, Men of Israel... Consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Because if it's from God, if it's not from God, it's going to die away. But if it is from God, verse 39, you'll not be able to stop this man. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. What is an enemy? What is this opposition? And why also in the New Testament, Gamaliel is quite frightened to oppose God? Why is it so clear for these guys of the Jewish community that they don't want to mess around with that? And why have they got such an obsession with the enemy from the outside? Before I expand more that question... I just want to drop another question saying, who are God's people? We've got very clear picture of the Old Testament of how God chooses a particular group of people to call his people by name. But this is no more the story, or no longer the, the story, with the New Testament. Because if we read in Galatians, for example, we say that Everybody who is calling in the name of Jesus by faith is becoming a son or a daughter of Jesus Christ. So we've got this expansion that is not only connected, it's not connected at all anymore with the ethnicity of a particular group of people. It's not connected anymore with an allegiance to a country. But it's a much bigger and much more beautiful picture that the people of God all of a sudden is a group of people who's got an allegiance with Jesus Christ. And this is the beauty of the gospel. So when we think about enemies in the New Testament terms, or even take it a little bit further and bring it to the 21st century, when we think about enemies, we need to be bearing in mind that the gospel has been so much abundant for us that when yet we were sinners, Christ died for us. 
Yet when we were enemies of God, how great was the love that God lavished upon us that we may be called children of God. John 1.12, for those who have received Him, He gave them the power to become children of God. Another part of uh, uh, Galatians talks about this, us approaching the throne of grace and saying, Abba, Father. So when we talk about enemies, we need to remember that in the New Testament, there is a different, different tone on the enemies, which is not localized into a group of people. Because in the end of the day, the enemy is somebody who is against God and is anointed. Who are God's people? It's those people who are really bought with the precious blood of the Lamb. And we're going to celebrate this as part of the, this thing. But let's go back to that question. How can we pray this, then, this psalm, as a disciple of Jesus Christ in the 21st century? This guy, Asaph, actually is looking for justice. He's looking for something to be done because he feels he finds himself being helpless. And he wants God to intervene in such a way. What is an enemy for the 21st century Christian? What do we consider to be our enemy. Now, this sounds very radicalizing, you know, uh, and stuff. I'm not intending to do that. I'm just throwing the air that I would want to ask you a personal question just between you and God. What would you consider, as a Christian who lives in Bristol, an enemy in the 21st century? And what do we do then with the enemy when Jesus has commanded us that instead of dealing with our enemies in the way that the psalmist envisaged that is going to happen, now we've got a more bigger, more beautiful picture of the cross. So how do we deal with the enemies when Jesus says, well, love your enemies? Does it mean that As a Christian community, we take up the pledge to say that we are going to be praying for those things that we consider that are really affecting Christianity. We are going to pray for those people who are stopping the furtherance of the gospel. We are going to pray for those people who are against God and He's anointed, who are against God and what Jesus has done in the cross. But how do we do this in a loving way? Without wanting to say any names here, how do we pray for specific terrorist groups that they may come to know 
God. Do you know the last reason why I chose this psalm is verse 16. There is a glimpse of hope even under Old Testament covenant. It's a shame and fear culture. So what does the psalmist pray? Let them be put... Sorry, verse 16. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. So if an Old Testament Levite had that hope that God's, if you put them to shame, that they will seek your name, even though they are my enemies, how much more hope have we got as New Testament Christians when we've got Christ, the hope of the nations? So what do we do then? How do we pray as God's people? How do we take this prayer? How do we take this psalm and make it a practical thing for us to do this coming week? Well, there are two things that we can do. The first thing is the easiest one. We can easily misunderstand this psalm and put it aside and just mark it as read. I've read it once and there's nothing to do with me. But there is another thing that we can do and that's the most difficult one. And actually, that's to pray and to ask that God's justice prevails over his enemies without any personal agenda. I know when it comes to justice, sometimes we treat it as who's got the biggest or the smallest piece of cake, of pizza, or chocolates. But what this psalm is encouraging us this morning is that we should be longing for a bigger justice which comes from God. And this justice, I'm afraid I'm going to be here an absolute, you know, total going against the, the mentality of this culture because this justice could only be seen absolutely only through the lens of the cross and the empty grave. And I think we need to be more fervent in our prayers that when we pray and we hope that this justice of God prevails over our enemies, that we, do you know where the personal agenda is? is when we say, yeah, that perhaps in the day of judgment that they will see that happen. And that's our human side of things because actually justice is in our DNA and we, we, we don't like when injustice happens. 
And I think we can be a little bit more radical here and saying that actually our prayer is that that hope, that longing for that justice is not only on the day of the judgment, but now that they will encounter God, that they will experience and they will be confronted by God's love and justice in Christ long before the day of judgment. As I said, if that longing for the psalmist was under the Old Testament, how much more hope is there for us? But that makes us a little bit more vulnerable. Because if we're asking for justice of God to come and for that hope, that longing, for that to be that those people would encounter God's love and be confronted by Him, it means that us as a community of faith are faithful to the Great Commission. How will they know if they have not heard? And how will they hear if it's no one cent? The Great Commission is the biggest responsibility that God has given to His church. And it's a very, very serious, demanding task. And I want to encourage you personally. I want to encourage the whole body today, this morning. And I want to challenge myself to say that is my hope for God's justice to be implemented only in my prayer? Or am I more hopeful in this gospel much more than just a prayer? That I know that God's love can confront anybody and we can respond to it in faith in order for us to be called sons and daughters of God. We're going to take communion now. And I said that we can only see the justice of God only through the lens of the cross and his resurrection. Jesus is the only advocate of God's justice. And this justice will be manifested in people coming to know him. And we have been given a task to be little Jesuses wherever we are. Whether in the prayer meeting for the school, whether in our workplace, whether in hospital. But there is hope. And Jesus is the only hope. O oh God, do not keep silence. 
Do not hold your peace or be still a God. The people in, do this in order that the people may seek your name, that they may know you alone, whose name is Lord, the Most High over all the earth. We've been given a task. We've been embraced by God's justice. We are the bearers of this justice. Let's share it. And let's not look at this psalm in a very negative way. Or it's nothing that it has to do with us. But let's look at it and say, well, because of what Jesus has done, things are different. And instead of cursing our enemies, we want to pray for them and bless them in Jesus' name.